Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. And I am accompanied today by the good folks here in Huntsville, Alabama. Yes, we have a live show. We've got a live show. Now, uh, we're dead, but no, <laughs> the audience is live. <laughs> We've got uh, Glenn in Indiana in his living room. We've got Tom in Connecticut in his living room. And I'm here at Fractal Brewing with all of these wonderful folks here in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, just so folks know who we are, in case uh, there are people still in the world who don't know who we are, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor of a church and uh, is in the Pacific Northwest, even though I'm here in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, And uh, I'm glad to be there. I've been a professor of philosophy. I've invested in real estate and I've written some books. And my latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil. That's enough about me. We'll kick it over to Glenn. And then we'll kick it over to you, Tom, and then you can take us into the subject of the day because it's your day. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor. My day job these days is working for Reflections Ministries in Atlanta, and I'm also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. All right. So, Tom, tell us about yourself, and then tell us what we're talking about. Okay. I am Tom Price. I teach uh, theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy, a few other things. Uh, one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And so the topic of the day, well, the title is maybe a good way to begin, and and I'm taking the title actually from a chapter in a fine book, which I'll talk about in a second, Um, but the name of this is Virtual Morality, Propaganda as Social Glue. Um, It's a great chapter for a book, um, and it has a lot of great context. But the context in which that chapter um, is just one is a book by John Rist, who is a fine uh, moral uh, philosopher. He actually has written a lot of his early work, I think, was a lot on the realist philosophers, um, Plato, I think several books on Plato. Um, but then he, as he kind of converts to Christianity um, for a bit later, he becomes uh, quite the uh, you know scholar of Augustine, and uh, really looks at his his whole vision, but especially a lot of the philosophical dimensions of his thought. Um, but one of the things he does in this book is he talks about what is a person. Um, he's asking a kind of a metaphysical question at this point. Um, and this book is really unpacking um, something of the whole of Western thought up to the confusions of our day. And so just to kind of get an idea of, of the, some of the chapters, um, he starts, of course, his favorite with the realist philosophers, um, the fa- what he calls the foundations, Plato and Aristotle. Um, then he talks about this notion of persons that starts to develop with the Stoics and individuals, but really this notion of personae um, with Christian persons. And Christianity um, really, if you will, brings some of the richest um, dimensions to our understanding of what it means to be human beings having a certain kind of neat, unique endowment, each one of us made in the image of God. Um, both um, as um, gift and those that are able to share and communicate that gift, communicate the different endowments we have with others for the flourishing and well-being of of the whole, if you will. Um, So this rich understanding of of the human person that grows out of, of, of what you would often talk about, the dignity of those made in the image of God, um, really grows uh, very thick, especially with St. Augustine. Of course, he's a big scholar of that, so he's going to bring that out. Now, some have looked at Augustine as someone who twists um, the Western notion of person from the rich Christian uh, Eastern understanding. Um, there has been a debate over you know several decades uh, about whether or not the kind of orthodox Christianity or Eastern Christianity um, altered the philosophical world to really make the personal at the heart of all reality, where Augustine is kind of accused of making the individual person rather than the persons in communion um, as uh, the focus, thus leading to the demise in the West um, of uh, community and the communal 
with a strong emphasis on the individual and atomistic. And I think what you'll see is with um, Rist's work is you'll see all that, if anything, all that kind of hyper-individualism, subjectivism that we confront now is, is a deforming of and a distortion of what Augustine was up to. And I think most scholars will now say um, some of those uh, theologians defending this kind of persons in communion uh, were not very historically accurate, and Augustine really shares very much in common with, with the Cappadocians and everyone else. Well, one, one of the things that I recall, you know, in, in graduate programs I've been in is just what you mentioned, uh, that Augustine is kind of the uh, apostle of interiority, you know, because yeah. of his work, Confessions, and that up to that point, we didn't have anything quite like that. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, you've got people like Rousseau kind of, you know, you know sort of echoing uh yeah. but in a new direction you know with yeah. his confessions and there and there are others but um yeah there are some people that are secular in outlook uh, people like harold bloom uh if yeah. i remember right who really believe that augustine kind of created the individual so this is a, yeah. a live topic outside yeah. of christian circles i think it's one of the things that maybe can catch people by surprise uh yeah. who aren't sort of ta- sort of tied into the sort of broader philosophical debates uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to the history of the West, just how uh, really much, uh, you know, secular th- philosophers are interested in people, you know, yeah. that we think are our guys <laughs> because yeah, they, they yeah. see the larger well, sort of social implications uh, of, their, yeah. of their work. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to do medieval history, political thought, anything like that without doing Augustine. I mean, I don't care who you are. You've got to deal with them. But for our listeners who aren't as familiar with some of these debates and arguments, I think the best way I heard it summarized is Augustine was the first person in history to use the word I, as in first person singular, me, to use the word I the way a modern person does. No one prior to Augustine did that. And that is a measure of of his impact. Yeah. Well, when you read the confessions, you do feel like you're reading someone that you can relate to today. You know, even though he's talking about a world that's, you know, way in the rearview mirror, you know, when he's talking about stealing pears or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of can 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 picture it in my mind. I I can I can kind of put myself in his shoes. Yeah. And uh, Rousseau uh, did, in fact, very self-consciously try to become the new Augustine and yeah. counter him with his his um, uh, era of sensibility sort of uh, writings, the confession. Yeah. Right. Right. And I, and I would you, know, you could easily see also Descartes, um, who, who, who similarly tries to take the, the notion of this this idea we have. Um, of God that somehow could not have been something that we have come up with through our experience in any way because there is nothing around like that. So where in the world does it come from? And he kind of traces some of Augustine. Augustine follows some of these lines of thought. Um, And and frankly, I think therefore I am, based on I doubt therefore I am. Augustine did that long before, before Descartes did. Yeah. Uh, although I think Augustine had a much more balanced way of doing it. He just used it as a way of yeah. simply pointing out how ridiculous the skeptics were. He didn't try to build a whole philosophy around it. That's right. And and I think for Augustine, you know, this is kind of a, worth talking about. I think for him, it was a way of recognizing, you know, in a, in a serious sense that we're dealing with reality. And then we're also... Um, we're finite and, and we're contingent. And so he, he, this is the, that whole process, especially when you look at his, his, um, work on the Trinity of this kind of psychological stepping up into, I mean, as he contemplates the way our subjectivity is structured, our mind and our, you know, in our thoughts, he begins to, to see something of, a, a vestige, if you will, that gives us a kind of way of referencing the way in which the uttered word can both be, you know, can both be, you know, God and then the uttered word, like a thought. You know, he's coming up with vestiges in our being made in the image 
that are finite, contingent, not comprehensive, but give us something of a language that we can use um, to talk about these things. And I, and I do think there, there, and I, you know, I'd go out on a limb. I think there is probably far more theologically informed psychological material in Augustine that we haven't done anything with well in the West and that we should return to. Um, and, and I do, there have been several works, um, out there. Um, but it's interesting. You both mentioned Rousseau and, and, you know, I brought up Descartes because I think there's another work by John Riss that is called deforming Augustine, um, where he talks about really the way his, his argument is not, he, he, his argument is probably the better way to characterize a lot of the disintegration away from the, you know, the robust and rich contributions of Christianity towards their distortions and then the mess we're in can really go to the impact of Augustine and then the distortions as people bent and ran in different directions. And he, um, being on the Catholic side, uh, would also see some of the reformation of, of, of having bent and distorted Augustine as well. We can debate him on that. Um, but um, his, his contribution otherwise is, is fantastic. Well, just to give you an idea where he goes, he'll, he'll get but, but into... Tom, uh-huh. quick, quick side note. Uh, Ken Boa, my uh, mentor and boss, uh, his doctoral work at Oxford was published in a book called From Augustine to Freud. Uh, so he, too, was working on the psychological side of it for, for his doctoral, for oh, that, one of that, his doctorates. Oh, that's oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I, I think, again, that, that is very unexplored territory on the whole. Um, and you, you just... You know, I think you have people that have tended to work on the side that, oh, because he's from back then, he, he doesn't have anything to say to something, you know, like our modern approaches to these things. And I think it's the other way around. Well, yeah, I definitely I agree. I mean, I think that it, that compared to Augustine, most of the stuff is not really all that it's, uh, profound. <laughs> you know, that, he, that's right. he, he's, he's, he's a giant for a reason. By the way, I should mention at this point, because I forgot to earlier, this is our 200th episode. Yeah. So, Tom, you are the guy who's doing the 200th episode, the subject of the day, and we're talking about Augustine, and that's great. So nothing better. Nothing better. <laughs> right. And right. I do. I do. I, I have to say, I, I, I love Augustine. I mean, I, I really, my, I, I'm always profounded by the rich insight he had. And you know, and what he has to offer. And again, I, I like everyone. You you weigh you weigh them up against other other teachings and the scriptures always. But to, someone had such a profound ability to engage the ideas of his day, see the richness of other contributions, but recognize these things needed to be brought in order rightly in light of Christ, um, and and, the, and just the the range and depth of a figure like that. And even the uh, sort of the incompleteness. I mean, one thing you'll get about Augustine, he'll start a work and then get walk away from it for years, and then he picks up on it. And when we read it, we don't really catch that there was a huge amount of growth and and development in that period. Um, but anyway, I don't want to just – I could stay on Augustine probably the whole, <laughs> the, the whole night. The, um, other, the, the other note I wanted to throw in is there's an entire subfield of history called History of Emotions – and I know people who have been working on the psychological systems that are embedded in Christian spirituality through the Middle Ages and actually th- straight through to the Puritans. Yeah. So that's another aspect of this that is heavily Augustinian, but not exclusively. Wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that. That, but I, I think you, you will see. I mean, one of the things that you you see very much with Augustine's engagement. Um, especially with the Stoic tradition, um, one of the things he, he he found problematic with the Stoics was that while they recognize that you have to 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 live, you have you will suffer. Um, but the Stoics attempt at being the the kind of rugged, hard individual um, of confronting that by becoming indifferent, if you will. Um, and this is the way Augustine read it. So, you know, I'm no Stoic scholar, so I don't, I don't, I don't know whether he read it right, rightly or not. But the way he read that is was something that needed to be changed. Is that no, actually, um, the way in which we relate to suffering as Christians 
is is a process through which our desires are actually can be open to being formed and refashioned the right way so that we begin to love and, and relate to things um, in a richer way. And so this is where Augustine's, you know, theology, uh, you know, of ordering loves begins to really take shape with his recognition that we're desirous creatures um, and that the whole pagan world, and if anything, I mean, John Calvin will say the whole re- the world is religious and desirous. Um, we're, we have a seed of religion, right, that, um, that he'll often say groping in the dark um, and fashioning idols constantly because we do um, recognize that there is something beyond, um, you know, the material, if you will, or the, or, or the, the, the pleasurable um, to which suffering becomes a complicated problem. And I think uh, Augustine recognized the Stoics were re- willing to face that head on. Um, but what they didn't do is push deeper and more openly to the fact that we recognize in suffering a certain finitude that pushes us into a deeper relation with being and, of course, the love that's at the heart of creation. And that this is that suffering isn't for um, becoming hard and indifferent. It's actually the other way around for, for developing friendship and, and you know, uh, restoring loves and all the like. But anyway, this goes very deep into the notion of persona and persons as communicative and in relation um, but also, ultimately, what they are as persons uh, is fundamentally given by their relatedness to, you know, the personal God. Um, and I think that that key dimension will be how religion is understood. We often make a division, you know, a, a divide between, you know, religion versus relationship. Um, that would not have been understood in Augustine's world. Um, it was the kind of relationship um, we all have. We're all, we're all religious. Um, we all have an orientation towards that which we're devoted to. That's what it means to be human. We're worshipers of something. Um, we set our love and affections on things. Well, Augustine is saying that we are not to set our loves on anything but the infinite source and person behind all things. Um, and that this is a communicative relationship with each other and with God. And so the personal and the unique and the gifted really start to come to 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 uh, burst into the theological world and into the into the wider Western culture to where eventually you'll get figures like Boethius, Richard of St. Victor. Um, when you really read Richard of St. Victor, for example, on the Trinity, you see how the, the personal and, and the love and the desires are very rich. It's almost romantic language. Um, and that really is at post Augustine. And this isn't flowery stuff. Um, we often think of it kind of as, you know, poetic and flowery. It's, it's the other way around. It's facing suffering without suffering, demolishing um, that fullest sense of what it means to commune with God and others. Um, so it, it's not it's not kind of softness. Um, it's a it's actually with you could also say it's more it's much more rich than indifference. So, Tom, how does this uh, kind of bring us to the title of that that uh, chapter? So, because that was an intriguing thing, because it's it's very much in contrast with what you've been talking about to this point. That's right. So, the contrast uh, works with the way and how how in the world do we start? That does the degradation begin? Um, and so he 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 really traces wet the West and the degradation of this rich understanding of the human. Um, having this distinct person gift and and dignity even fallen so, yeah mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm what i'm hearing you say is you know what we have with augustine is something real uh and yeah. something uh that uh is a contrast with something virtual yes. which is, gets us to this title yes well how we get to the virtual what what um wrist begins doing is really looking at the way in which this rich picture starts to be chipped away. And what he, he begins talking about, though, is at first, this chipping away is because, as we've talked about in other shows, a distorted view of God is basically imposing, as one great agent imposing his will on everything else. And if we don't like it, 
we can just either suck it up or rebel against it, right? That you know the the fist, the Promethean fist in the face of God. That competitive view eventually will lead to to religion being looked at um, by the elite scholars, if you will, that that see it really as a kind of supreme superstition. Um, as this God is basically despotic and and irrational and capricious and so you know only a fool would believe it but many fools do believe it and so how in the world do we manage with our elite enlightened understanding to to not you know to really continue to be elite um to impact the whole to bring some along that are capable of being brought along um, without just throwing everything into chaos. And so part of the story is the way in which it, the first enlightenment sought to kind of have all the riches of the Christian vision, the morality, the view of the person, but without the God that it's attached to. Um, and so and so, what you begin, as Dostoevsky once said, once you get rid of that God, you're going to eventually get rid of the human person as well, which is really what this this story is about. So what you do is have that first step of kind of the virtual, if you will, is that morality and religion are sort of an illusion that a lot of people hold to. But as political philosophers and philosophers, we need to somehow utilize that to keep a kind of what he calls here a social glue in place um, so that we can kind of take the planks out one by one and bring some along that are enlightened and, you know, whatever, for the rest. And it's that whatever for the rest attitude that is really where he starts taking this picture. Yeah, this this reminds me of sort of the vital lie that, you know, uh, Plato uh, alludes to in different points in time. You know, there, is, there are myths that have to be believed by the masses, uh, to yeah. be literally so, in order for the society to function, even though the enlightened don't necessarily believe these things to be so. Yes, and he, he alludes to that. He also, uh, to Plato's uncle, like, Critias, is that, is that how you say it? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can't recall. But, but he's the one, he, yeah, he's the one who, who basically said that, you know, the gods were invented by a bunch of, you know, basic charlatans to manipulate others, you know. Yeah. Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins thinks that, that that's a new idea that no one ever, you know. <laughs> that's maybe, right. You know, that's right. That, that that might be possible, <laughs> Yeah. That's right. And, and one of the things Riss talks about is that was a speculative idea for Plato and the others. I mean, Plato didn't even think it was possible because he, he grew up in such a religiously infused world um, that religion and, and, and for him, Plato and the Republic will actually talk about the way in which, you know, in politics, it's OK to to lie for the benefit of the Republic, but don't do that in religion. But eventually what you start to see is this kind of move. And we, we've talked about Machiavelli and, and, and other figures that can kind of see, you know, weighing expediency and the beliefs of the people and things like that. But what Rist is on to is something a little bit um, more sinister. And one of the things that he really brings into the topic um, is the, the, the increased way in which, especially through the utilitarians, and who are the utilitarians? Well, there are a handful of, of philosophers that don't really see inherent goodness um, stamped into creation in which you can know something of and know how properly to relate to it or not. Um, it really evaluates things based on what you would call the hedonistic calculus, if you will. Um, that which brings the maximal amount of ple good as pleasure to, you know, the, the largest amount of people. Um, and so it's, you know, they see it as scientific, mathematic, um, but it's ripped from any kind of realist vision of there being an inherent good in the nature of things to which we have to orient ourselves. Yeah, I think, I think one way to put it is uh, utilitarians think that the world is good for certain things. Yes. But they don't actually think that the world is good. And that's right. You know, it's pretty close to kind of the Gnostic outlook. And we've talked about this before, where the Gnostics, they did believe that the world, uh, the physical world was created by kind of a bungling deity. 
and that our spirits belong to some other deity and we are trapped here. And I've actually heard uh, contemporary uh, thinkers and scientists, uh, when they talk about the world, sound an awful lot like Gnostics uh, in that respect. You know, that the world uh, isn't uh, uh, as sort of beautiful and as well thought out as as we might like to believe. So it's particularly something you hear with the, the transhumanists, you know, people like yeah. Ray Kurzweil, you know, we can improve on this that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And, but anyway, uh, but this idea though, that the, that the world isn't good uh, uh, because God has made it, but it's good because it's something that we can use to make what we want and bring ourselves some happiness uh, in the process uh, is a very different view than the, older Christian view. Yeah. And Glenn, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just struck by the sort of the opposite end of this, but also can get sort of uh, into a kind of technognosticism. And that's the, the dark green guys who see yeah. the world as, as intrinsically good in human beings as a blight on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where, where the, the ultimate good is the health and the survival of the planet. And evil really consists of human degradation of the environment. Yeah. You know, it's, sort of, it's sort of the opposite extreme of what Chris was talking about, where it completely negates the value of the individual uh, or of the human. Uh, whereas in Chris's side, it, I would argue, does the same thing, but gets at it from a completely different direction. Yeah. Yeah, and both of these both of these outlooks have a lot of social cachet today, uh, and lead in some odd ways to similar outcomes. Um, on the one hand, uh, the dark green people think that it would be great if we were all sterilized so that we can't reproduce and sort of yeah. spread the blight. Or well, you know, then you've got techno. So then you have the techno gnostics who would, would just like to make children irrelevant because we're all going to live forever if we can engineer you know, the human body to last forever. Well, and then there are also the, the uh, techno Gaians who are going to argue that we can use technology and transhumanist principles to create people that will have a much uh, lighter footprint on the environment. You know, that won't need to consume as much, that won't, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that we can just like get by in fewer calories or something like that. We're just much smaller. <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, what, what you have there, what you have there is the chipping away of the, the kind of human person and the privilege and special place it plays in um, the Christian vision and the Western vision influenced by the Christian vision. But again, it's not, as, as he's talking about, it wasn't easy. It's not easy to sell that until you get enough people on board and enough backing, right? Now people, they have more, they feel more confident to say it out loud. Um, but one of the things that is noticeable is you, you sort of have this step where someone like Jeremy Bentham will say he has no time for religion, has no time for metaphysics. They, they saw that as kind of, or they use that for a term for philo- really philosophy. They saw sort of so, well, especially with John Stuart Mill um, and, and Compt, the sociologists will basically be the theologians, you know, of, of the future, um, because that's really what you're dealing with at this point, um, social phenomena. Um, and, you know, and, but anyway, they, one of the things is they're, they're kind of were in-house debates for, you know, is there a positive use for religion and classical moral virtue or not? Um, John Stuart Mill would, would actually try to retrieve some of Plato's virtue because he saw this kind of radical utilitarianism as kind of, if you will, moving too fast and sweeping away everything they wanted to gain, um, because it, it would unglue the society too quickly. So, but he didn't, he wanted to rip it from the transcendent. So ultimately he ends up in the same place. But the real interesting thing here comes with this figure, Henry Sidgwick, um, who I, I don't know a lot about his background. Do any of you know much about his background? But he is, he's a follow-up, 
utilitarian. He's going to develop the, these ideas, and he, he, he wrote several uh, significant books. One was called Methods in Ethics. But one of the things you begin to notice in his writing and in his, his speeches and in his talk is that he embraces all in the name of this utilitarianism, which he saw as a profound aspect of the Enlightenment and that only the elite educated really had access to. Um, that he gives a full stamp to the approval of what is called massive deception in the hope of, here's a quote, of protecting society from unpleasant truths, right? Um, and so there is a way in which he begins to see the rest of society is not adult, as immature and not capable of this kind of enlightenment major- maturity in which they need to be the parent to. Um, and as a good parent, is you're not going to tell the, the child the whole picture. You're going to just tell them what's enough to protect them from the truth um, for their own good, for their own survival, for their own safety. Um, and so this was his kind of uh, his strong emphasis. So what you see is a distortion now of the dignity of these of common adults as real persons, if you will, now as basically being seen as immature persons or a lesser kind of person than the elites that need a certain kind of guidance, direction, and even a detachment. This is where the virtual dimension comes in. A detachment where you give them a virtual religion, a virtual story of truth, even if it's the one they already hold, but it's not the real one from the Enlightenment perspective. And it's for their good. I mean, this is the, this is the yeah. kind of argument. There are a couple of things that come to mind. One is, you know, the thing that you've been stressing, how this is a detachment from the classical Christian understanding uh, and how, you know, the classical understanding of the human being was uh, informed by, you know, there being a relationship to a transcendent God and the human beings are made in his image and consequently possess uh, by virtue of their their relationship to God and, and being made in God's image an inherent dignity. Now we have uh, just kind of uh, an approach with utilitarianism, which thinks of human beings as kind of objects to uh, manipulate. Yeah. Uh, and these, uh, these objects have, uh, unfortunately, certain sort of, uh, uh, I guess, internal... Uh, characteristics, meaning ideas, old-fashioned ideas, which make them difficult to maybe manage. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and then you do, you, like you move to the soci- to, to the to your comment about sociology replacing theology. Well, yeah. what sociologists did was describe, but that's yeah. not what the utilitarians are thinking about. What they're thinking about is proscribe, uh, yeah. or, and so uh, shape and mold uh, yeah. these people. What you have is a kind of a set of uh, intellectual and social conditions emerging within which totalitarianism becomes almost inevitable. Well, this is this is where he's he's going to go with this. this is this is the totalitarian totalitarian's dream to be able to detach here and utilitarian the way you and this is what I found illuminating because I'd never really connected the the deep ways in which the utilitarians. Um, and I didn't, you know, we're involved in this and I didn't really pick up on the, the, the deep loathing is what he puts it on here. What you see with Sidgwick is already a tendency to patronize the unenlightened, if not despise them, um, perhaps as not yet real persons, right? This is how they relate. And so they can't become real persons until they're enlightened. It's kind of like, I, I don't know if you remember during the whole, uh, you know, Trump-Russia collusion stuff, the uh, the FBI agent who was having the tryst with some lawyer and they were texting back and forth tr- about Trump voters being these vile Walmart wearing people. It's this kind of <laughs> this kind of patronizing, um, you know, or, or deplorable, this kind of notion that we're in the enlightened group. We keep the truth from these, you know, f- rubes. And that that uh, that we despise them. We almost hate. And, and what you can see here is that quick step to despise not real persons, not like us, 
to becoming dispensable, manipulatable, not having their values upheld, not ha- giving them the dignity of right or whatever else goes along with it to, to, to the level of the barbaric, allowing them to be sacrificed for the, the pleasurable good of the enlightened you know, uh, elite or, or the whole. Yeah, what I'm struck by is is the degree to which this aligns so well with, well, for example, communism. Uh, you look at the Soviet Union; um, the elites had a completely different yeah. set of rules that they operated by than the masses, and they were feeding the masses a bunch of lies. Although, actually, yeah. if you read today, I, I just read yesterday, and I think it was Foreign Affairs, um, a. Uh, a a Russian diplomat who just resigned. And what you find happening even there, according to him, even in the Russian foreign ministry, there is a total faith that whatever it is that's coming out of Moscow is the gospel truth. (laughs) And therefore, even if it bears no resemblance to reality, they to all appearances, believe it and accept it and certainly act as if it's true. So it's even among the elites where they're lying to themselves about what's happening. That's, by the way, why this guy ended up quitting. Well, it's interesting because that, I think that's the point here with his, his movement that, that virtual morality, which becomes, as he said here, that basically individuals must be tricked in order for humanity to be safe. I mean, that's one of the things that is behind this, this move. What you have is the next step is, you know, basically propaganda as the social glue. And it, it almost becomes necessary for elites to start to start believing it themselves at some given point in some way, still enough to direct it and control it. But on the other hand, I mean, it's like the old, I, I don't know if they, they had a book about it, but I think it was also a film basically called There's No Murder in Paradise, which was similar there, it was about, you know, in Russia, in which a guy basically reported a murder he saw into which they send him the re-education camps to let him know <laughs> there is no murder in paradise. That was not a murder, you know? <laughs> yeah, we have that all the time uh, in uh, Portland, Oregon. There are all kinds of crimes that are committed every day, but they're not really crimes. Crime. So uh, remember Joshua Mitchell? We talked about an article that he had published in First Things sometime back. I think he was an Erasmus yes, lecture yes. guy. Anyways, he was uh, at Touchstone, the Touchstone conference I was at uh, last week. But uh, both, I uh, think, in that article and in his talk, he talked uh, in, at Touchstone, he talked about uh, a, a transition that occurred uh, in the uh, early days of the American Republic. Uh, the ideal was the competent citizen, which went that, you know, people who are property-owning uh, citizens uh, are learning competence and and are competent to manage their own affairs. Then we get to the early 20th century and we have the rise of the progressives, you know, people uh, who are really kind of the, uh, you know, sort of the elite uh, and administrative class. And we are promoting competence with those folks. So those folks are supposed to be competent. Uh, yeah. And what we find ourselves uh, see, you know, uh, seeing emerge today is that uh, we don't even want competence anymore. <laughs> so you know, we go from like everybody should be competent to a few people should be competent to nobody is competent, and <laughs> yeah. and, and we we end up with institutions which are losing their ability to uh, instill competence. Uh, I, yeah. I read something by Alan Dershowitz today, uh, I think in Newsweek, and he was lamenting. Um, you know, great inflation and the and the fact that we uh, are graduating incompetence from elite institutions now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So even at the highest levels, we're not willing to apply standards uh, uniformly. There are certain classes of people who are exempt. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that the standards actually lower for everybody, not just for that group. Well, and that's the kind of, that's the, you know, the irony here is that, you know, utilitarianism is a form of consequentialist ethics. In other words, the ends justify the means if it, if it ends, if the ends basically produce the maximum amount of pleasure for the maximum amount of, you know, people or however that, it really, it really, the maximal amount of pleasure for the small elite is really what, 
what you have going on here, but making everyone else think it's for the, the, the majority. But also just, just that very philosophy itself already has the ability to exclude all those that aren't part of the maximal benefiting. And so you have built into utilitarianism a notion that some persons aren't fully persons if they're not part of, this is part of why, you know, even in the secular variants of individual rights and things like that, still we're, we're holding on to a semblance of the Christian view of the person, which meant, look, just because the maximal benefit doesn't mean it should still be done in overriding the, these other people who have the dignity of being made in the image of God or, you know, um, being human uh, beings. Yeah, fundamentally, you know, the utilitarian approach, along with a lot of other modern approaches to ethics or postmodern approaches, basically ignores anything like the rights of the individual. The yeah. only thing that really matters is the, well, how you measure the happiness, I don't know, but all that matters is the, the good of the majority. And if that means destroying the individual, so be it. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, it, now, I, I have an interesting example. I, I, I just looked up. I, I quoted, this is some quotes I, from my uh, book, Why You Think the Way You Do, that I tracked down. Um, Timothy Wirth, former U.S. Senator, Democrat, Colorado, commented, now this has to do with global warming. We've got to ride the global warming issue. Even if the theory of global warming is wrong, we will be doing the right thing in terms of economic policy and environmental policy. Or, another quote, environmentalist uh, Stephen Schneider argued, quote, we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts we may have. Each of us has to decide what the, what the right balance is between being effective and being honest. Well, that's the same that's the kind, kind of, of thing that we're talking about, you know, in yes. a nutshell. Yeah, that's the same obscuritism that we witnessed with COVID. And we saw the right. damage that was done. No one's allowed to question. No one's allowed to think independently. Everybody's supposed to parrot the party line, even though maybe in the faculty, uh, you know, sort of break rooms, they're talking about, well, maybe this isn't actually so, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. But they don't, they can't give uh, even the slightest indication that they may have a doubt when it comes to the party yeah. line. Yeah, how, how dare those, you know, what, whatever you would call those rubes, those religious zealots, you know, question the efficacy of what, you know, our elites say is will keep you safe and allow you to survive. And so you can give up your your freedom and your ethical um, responsibility to weigh these things and hand them right over to those who know better, even if they're wrong and they know they're wrong and even if they don't you know, want to look at. And then as you come to see later on, as you see all the sinister interests behind those who, that were pushing a lot of the things, you begin to see that, you know, what you, you get, you know, all you get is a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, passing it off to the other person um, who, you know, someone else is guilty or, or, you know, it seemed the best thing to do at the time. And um, it's, it's disturbing. I just heard California is, is putting through or a bill is coming through that basically makes it illegal or you're charged if you question publicly what the, cons the consensus of certain interpretations of science have. That's the end of science. Right. right. Yeah. Falsifiability. Well, once falsifiability and questionability are done, you're dealing with pure ideology. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, and then you run into things like a quote I saw this week from Bill Gates, who said, we had no idea that COVID was not as serious as we thought it was, that it's really not much more than a flu. <laughs> Where had we heard that before? <laughs> yeah, I remember the orange man says something similar. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had no idea. Nobody had any clue about this. Well, yeah, actually, the conspiracy theorists and the science deniers did. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of the science deniers were actually PhDs and uh, actually scientists. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll ignore that fact. But <laughs> but I, I find the subject really interesting because, the, the in fact, what we are seeing is a constant drumbeat of propaganda. Yeah. Not just from the government, but now, interestingly enough, the media, which is supposed to be the yeah. watchdog, is yeah. parroting the same thing. Yeah. Big tech is parroting the same thing. And if you dare to yeah. question it, 
you get, well, in California, you get arrested, but elsewhere you get canceled or silenced or uh, sent to Facebook jail or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my, my, my con- sort of my uh, suspicion is that uh, the totalitarianism that we are seeing emerge uh, is distinguishable from the forms that it's taken in the past by two things. One is it's more sanitary, you know, because the optics of uh, concentration camps are just bad. And, <laughs> you know, so, so the yeah. authorities don't want that kind of thing. Uh, but the other is just uh, the spontaneous character of it. So, you know, we don't need some maniacal uh, individual like a Stalin or a Hitler to make this thing come to pass or sort of see this thing develop. Um, it's almost as though it's uh, kind of like uh, ad hoc. It's, it's like it's emerging from just the Internet or something, if you get my drift. Yeah. That there's a kind of momentum to it. And then next thing you know, everybody's hopping on board and nobody wants to be, you know, that guy who, who uh, whose tweet was uh, reproduced 15 million times and made, you know, an object of, of scorn across the world. Everybody's sort of like canceling themselves first in a bad way. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, because they're self-censoring and they're afraid to say what's on their minds. Yeah. Now, the implications of this are really interesting if you take it to some of the next steps. Um, political and economic systems tend to run hand in hand in hand because they're both based on common premises about what natural human relations look like. So feudalism in medieval Europe had its economic counterpart as manorialism is built around the same premises. I don't expect you to know what those were, but trust me on that. <laughs> when you're dealing with, uh, with uh, republicanism um, and the idea that we have the right to elect our representatives, that's really compatible with free market economics. You get to choose your leaders. You get to choose your job. You get to choose what to spend your money on. You get to choose what store you go to, what you buy, all of those kinds of things. It's all a matter of the the choice of the individual is really the the thing that that controls that. Now, when you move to the direction we're moving now, where you've got the the expert class and the rubes, yeah, and the expert class can well will lie to the rubes for their own good. What you're really dealing with is a system that is built around a technocratic elite that runs the government, which then has its economic counterpart as socialism. We've got to have an economic elite that governs the economy. Yeah. They're, they're, they, they run together. And it's no accident yeah. that socialism is, is growing in popularity among the young. Because, number one, they don't know their history. But, number two we're increasingly being told we should shut up and listen to the experts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think you also have this kind of way in which, again, uh, religion and even the religionist um, kind of promote uh, some of this. I mean, you often see them that the the kind of having an almost a, a moral elite, if you will, um, t- this group tends to be the virtuous and therefore tends um, to embody that kind of virtue and humanitarianism, that, that, that kind of capitalist society with their kind of uncultivated choices running in every direction, greed, you know, selfishness and all of this. Um, it, it's a very naive understanding of socialism, first of all, but it's, a, it's propaganda. I mean, it's the same thing you have going on here. It, yeah, it, the elites are not virtuous. <laughs> they're not I, virtuous and they're not the governors of virtue. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things many evangelicals have uh, had a hard time sort of kind of working through is we thought that the mainline uh, Protestant churches were the, you know, the people who behaved that way, Tom. Yeah. So what yeah. We discovered uh, over the last, you know, th- you know, two, three, four years is that we have a kind of emerging uh, sort of uh, junior varsity evangelical mainline. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and those those folks uh, have been uh, operating in ways that many of us feel uh, are eerily similar to the things that we see in other parts of our yeah. political elites. There's a kind of working yeah. alliance. You're familiar with Meg Besham and her work on what, uh, you know, the, the guys, uh, 
you know, at the CDC and NIH were doing in terms of kind of actually working behind the scenes, coordinating with certain evangelical big evil leaders to try yes. to get their, yeah. their program out and, dis- and sort of quell any yeah. dissent coming from the evangelical side of the world. And, yeah. you know, you wonder, you know, why is it certain evangelical leaders do have a platform in places like the Washington Post or the New York Times? Well, yeah. you know, they might think uh, it's just because they're so respected, but yeah. perhaps it's because they're useful. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, and, and I think that, that that's very, that's correct. And I think one, one side to it, I don't want to go far down the saying it, but I think the pragmatism that a lot of evangelical Christianity adopted, Christianity as a whole adopted, but a lot of it adopted in, in, in what, it, what works um, socially makes them very susceptible to that kind of utilitarian um, uh, but being manipulated or exploited by it because, sure. because what works effectively is modeled on how it is received by its culture, how the culture despisers. Right, right. Yeah. One thing that I, I don't understand at this point, and I know that there are all kinds of theories about this, but the Surgeon General of Florida comes out and says, that the COVID vaccines increase heart trouble um, in people 19 to 34 years old, particularly males. He's got the data. He's got the evidence. He gets kicked off Twitter (laughs) for saying this because Twitter, of course, has greater experts who actually know the situation better than he does. I doubt it. What are they after? What is the CDC after? What is the what are the, the the drug companies that suppress these results that show that I mean they're they're out now the numbers are horrendous any other vaccine historically that had even a tiny fraction of these numbers of, of adverse reactions has been pulled from the market why is it that this one has got this dispensation to be to, to ignore all that. Why is it that so much is questioning it is is grounds for for canceling, even if you are the Surgeon General of Florida? What what's what this is, I think, a great example of what you're talking about yeah. of an elite lie that is being promoted for our own good, except objectively it isn't. So what are they after? Yeah, and, and I think this is, I mean, there, there are a few things I think just that come to mind. I mean, one is, I think the, the coalition, if you will, as Chris was mentioning earlier, of a, almost a united voice of propaganda from not just one group, say the pharmaceutical industry, but the way in which they're now all in bed together, if you will. And by being in bed together, they are very much more powerful because they create a propaganda campaign that, like Chris was saying, that you almost you almost come against yourself in order to not be canceled by or shut out or lose your bank account because of the this kind of um, totalitarian drive. Um, I, I do think it's global at this point. There's no way of getting across it. A matter of fact. I might, might as well bring it up while it's on my mind. Why? Where is the just war folk? We're in a mess. We're almost on the brink of from from the the, the rhetoric nuclear war, and uh, I have hear, heard uh, almost zip and nothing from from the morals uh, from the moral reflection of of the church. It's almost. It's right. almost silent, but anyway, <laughs> you've, probably, you've probably seen those memes, you know, yeah. in which you know it's sort of the rabid woke girl says, "Oh no, you know, Trump is going to bring World War III upon us," and then in the next picture, she's happy and smiling. Oh boy, we're going to have World War III. World War III, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. because it's our team now that's uh, you know the, the, the possible sort of perpetrator. <laughs> you know, but the but, moral, the moral lunacy. Of yep. of bringing rhetoric to that level of what could be, I mean, the, if you just think of the way, say the just the let's just talk the Catholic uh, uh, 
probably um, right around, you know, 60s and 70s in Vietnam, the way in which some of the left, but also kind of the Catholic social teaching, I mean, they were radically involved in questioning a lot of the motives of different wars, Vietnam, different things. We may or may not agree with them. But the way that those voices were constantly challenging, or you just think of the 80s against, you know, the stuff Bush was involved with in the attention that those who, but you, like you said, once they, once they, they're kind of, they're the ones running the game, there is literally not in the church, hardly anything mentioned about something that could have much more damaging effect on large swaths of humanity. Um, and, and again, there's, there's this kind of moral fogginess. Yeah. Um, well, maybe it gets back to this whole idea of the lie. So yeah. what we have with the utilitarians is, okay, we need to keep the rubes happy. We don't believe in the Christian faith any longer, but they yeah. do. So we're going to yeah. utilize that in order to maintain a, a social uh, order. We'll continue to pursue our, uh, agenda, um, and, you know, leave them to their uh, illusions and yeah. every once in a while maybe give a nod in that direction. But, you know, what's happening, of course, is fundamentally dishonest. And now we've yeah. moved into a new phase of the, the dishonesty. And it strikes me that we are really at a, at a point that uh, brings to mind the Babel uh, story, you know, in yeah. Genesis, where, uh, you know, in that case, uh, the Lord confuses their language or their speech yeah. so they can't uh, communicate with each other any longer. Yeah. But aren't we at that point in the sense that language has become so divorced from uh, yeah. what it's supposedly uh, referring to or uh, the, in other, in other yeah. words, when we speak, uh, there is uh, the promise that we're at least endeavoring to say something that's true. Yeah. Now yeah. we're at a point where you're not like, taking anybody's word for anything you know everybody yeah. is yeah. uh just full of uh doubt and suspicion and you know it's everywhere it's in the yeah. churches yeah. it's in our yeah. personal relationships it's in our relationship to the government and to the authorities it's everywhere yeah yeah look at the names of the laws that congress passes yeah yeah, yeah they're all lies yeah, <laughs> yeah. we all and we can all see through them it's just it's not even they're not even convincing you know yeah well, and, and it's like you said, and, and, and coupled with that is is likewise the way in which, like you said, language detached from re reality, and then reason itself being everything being suspicious. Reason is nothing more than a rhetorical ploy for people to manipulate others in their direction, um, to oppress others, you know, or whatever. And so, what you have is no real rational way in many cases to resolve things. The old moral way of confronting. Now, it's interesting that they're very frightened by any kind of challenge on Twitter or something of their narrative. I mean, it's that fragile. Um, but, on, you know, so they, but because they do know the power of language, because there are still, as the, as, as Rist is getting to, per, human persons who, who think that when things are spoken by their government or by institutions they used to have trust, they mean it. They have their interests at heart. And if they break that kind of bond of trust, it's like uh, it's, uh, Riss says it here. He said, um, he goes, individuals must be tricked in order that humanity may be safe or at least judged to be safe. Albeit when the deceived detect the deception, society may actually suffer worse damage than what would have occurred had truth been told. And so, um, and so but we, we're not allowed to to, for, I'll give you an example. One of the things he talks about is the way in which um, some of these philosophers recognize that philosophically things are deterministic, but we cannot let the masses who think they have some kind of responsible moral action think that they don't. Because what will happen to all of our societal aims for justice when they realize there really isn't anything called justice, right? Um, so we need to let them think that there is something that they are morally responsible for so that they will be, keep the society glued together and think that they're pursuing things like righteousness and just social order. Um, and, and so and this gets right into the whole issue with like the, the critical theory, right, who uses language of justice and social justice. 
um, only holds some people responsible and other people are actually the perpetrators who actually use freedom the wrong way when no one else has freedom. So you have this whole picture, but to challenge it, to, to make any claim that, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this is irrational and therefore untrue, um, is merely just looked at as you taking your privilege and power and trying to subvert a, you know, a, a, a narrative that was left out previously and therefore deserves to have the dignity of being taken seriously. And so well, we are in a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in, in every, in every uh, scenario in which there's a lie, there is somebody who's the mark, the trusting person, yeah. uh, the person who kind of is not fully in on the, the secret. Uh, yeah. and, you know, the case that you just described uh, with, you know, late 19th century utilitarianism, early 20th yeah. century progressivism, you know, the rube was the average citizen, right? And yeah. you had this small, you know, sort of uh, cabal of, of, yeah. of people who were putting it over everybody on everybody else. But it only worked if everybody else really was a rube. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. The moment, the moment they catch on, they're like, I'm not going along with these guys anymore. I, I, I know what they're up to. You know, well, that, about- the interesting thing is that that's exactly what happens in totalitarian societies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That the, the people learn very, very fast that you cannot trust what the media is saying. And it's not even extreme totalitarian societies. I ran into someone from Portugal who said that whenever you read the news, what what she had learned growing up in Portugal is that when you read the news, you need to ask a couple of questions. Why are they telling me this? And what aren't they telling me? (laughs) Now, isn't that true with most American media today? Right, you know, we're we're kind of at that point. Uh, And, you know, getting back to the woke thing, uh, you know, the woke agenda only works if the mark, the target group that's supposed to be made uh, to feel bad and guilty are still yeah. operating by the old Christian values. The moment yes. they yeah. say, OK, I see how this works. You're just using yeah. this against me as a, as a, as in order to accrue power. Well, why yeah. should I let you do that to me? I can okay. I can lie back, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so then you yeah. have just total yeah. war of all against all. And then, you know, is that really what they want? Of course not. They want the rest of us to operate by sort of the yeah. old standards of fairness yeah. uh, and not have those standards applied to them. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, that, I would argue that wokeness is a recipe for creating white supremacists. Well, that's because what I'm getting at. The, because if the, because that's what yeah. that's what it leads to. If you if you say, okay, the only way that this plays out is the most powerful win. Well, okay, here we go. I'm just yeah. going to be that, for my I mean, that, that was. I mean, basically, I mean, we've talked about this before. That was basically Nietzsche, Nietzsche's point. He he was basically saying that he he criticized Christianity as basically providing what could be called the slave revolt, and he despised Christianity because one. It it gave and empowered the weak in his in Nietzsche's interpretation to guilt with the those ideals that would resonate or you could kind of guilt them into being shamed that they had power and privilege and everything else so that they would you know deny it and allow that kind of the the slave to kind of uprise and then and then you know basically take over. And, and Nietzsche kind of admired it because of the way it could manipulate through guilt to bring the powerful down and to exalt the, the weak. He thought it was like a fancy trick, if you will, but he despised it for that. So he wanted but, something much, much stronger. But isn't it true, uh, Tom, that yeah. Nietzsche didn't fall for it? In other yeah, words, that's right. Nietzsche, Nietzsche would, um, would mock those people. And it's possible for you and I to get to a place where you say, hey, call me anything you want. Yeah. Call me every name in the book. It just, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't penetrate. I know what you're up to. It doesn't work. Yeah. We've we've been in those classes where people have played those games in us and we just look them in the eye and say, who? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. It, it it only works the, the way that what I'm talking about in the in, in this whole chapter um, works the way in which you have language that th- the elites think of basically as conventional, but it's really a, a holdover from Christianity. 
but it's been detached from the transcendent, and it is now seen basically as a, an illusion by the elites that they know still has a capture on the imagination of the rest of society. And so they can play with it then um, to, 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 to do a lot of these things. And that's what, especially in the academic world, they're constantly doing. Um, they're, they're playing with it and, and carrying out a lot of, uh, well, the, the consequences are, are becoming quite unbearable for the average person nowadays. And I think too for the the uh, academic elites. If you, I, I uh, get the uh, daily email from the Chronicle of Higher Education, and they're getting more and more <laughs> shrill and more and more crazy with all of their headlines. It's it's kind of amusing. Anyway, yeah. uh, we should probably wrap things up here. We've got a, a live audience here, and we're going to segue to a, a uh, question and answer time here in a minute. But we should bring this part of the show to a, to an end so that you know we can sign off. Is there anything you want to say, Glenn, as we do that? This whole discussion has been making me think of COVID. It's been making me think of, uh, well, pick pick your cause du jour. Every single one of them seems to line up very, very nicely with this. Yeah, yeah. Anything you want to say as we wrap up this part of, the, of our time, Tom? Um, just the last word is kind of, the, I think, another time do a show basically on, on how we as Christians are, are to deal with a lot of this. And, and one of which is, I think, the issue of trust, building trust with, with faithful, truthful conversation and character. But that's a whole show of its own. But I, I think it does, like Glenn said, touch on things we're constantly dealing with, even in the church and its, its hierarchy, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Theology Podcast. You made it to the end of another show. We will have a question and answer time, uh, and that means there's going to be a bonus show that you can listen to that we'll post after this one does, and we welcome you to listen to that. There are folks out there who support us on a regular basis through Patreon, through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We're very grateful for those folks. There are folks who even track us down to give us money in other ways. <laughs> and uh, it's all very, uh, very helpful. It, it does pay the bills. So thank you for all of that. Anyway, that's it for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.